The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. AOC gets ready for the biggest speech of her political life. Night two of the virtual convention. Tyler Pager is going to give us a preview. Plus, on Dr. Jill Biden, she's speaking from a classroom. The Philly girl, self-described Philly girl. She uh, was putting that on social media. So we're going to get the the inside scoop and, and all the fallout from From what happened last night as Michelle Obama giving the political speech of of the best political speech, I think, of last night. I don't know. I I guess that's opinion. But and Senator Bernie Sanders as well. We're going to break all that down. Plus, I've got an inside uh, scoop at what's happening at the State Department. U.S. Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Keith Kroc, he's going to call in because he's warning colleges to divest China stocks over delisting risk. You don't want to miss this. All these endowments. I didn't even know this. All these endowments at these big colleges and universities, they're entangled with China. Keith says, no way, no how, not going to happen. So I'm going to ask him about that. Uh, plus, breakthrough with the USPS. Did you see this? Busy day here in Washington, D.C. U.S. Postal Service says they're not going to touch any policies until after the election. And Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi says she could trim the fiscal stimulus by about half. Did you watch the virtual convention? No confetti, folks. No balloons. There was some music. Maggie Rogers. I guess like Maggie was playing on some, on like the rocks on an ocean. I always wonder, how do you keep your balance when you do that? Anyway, Senator Bernie Sanders giving a progressive, self-described Democratic Socialist speech. He said, hey, he's got differences with Joe Biden and himself. But he, he, he made the argument of from Bernie Sanders's perspective that this is about defeating fascism, which I thought was fascinating. And I'm going to be looking to see how freshman Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez makes her case when she speaks tonight, along with former President Bill Clinton and, of course, Dr. Jill Biden, uh, Joe Biden's wife. Uh, and then, of course, the, the speech everybody was talking about, former First Lady Michelle Obama, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, and we've got both on the show tonight. Um, it was really interesting to see, as I told my friend here at Bloomberg Television of Bloomberg Surveillance, Tom Keen, she played to the medium. I mean, she played to people's cell phones. If you're going to have to deliver remarks and you can't do it in front of a crowd or a packed stadium, then you got to play to this people's cell phones. I mean, in everything from the details on the necklace around her neck, which was, we later learned, 
uh, was from a small business, a small black business that said vote on the jewelry to her eyes glossing over just the emotion that she spoke with, the conviction. It was really, I think, a template for any other virtual convention speech going forward. So stylistically, we've got that. And we'll talk policy coming up as well. Tyler Pager's on the line. I'm so thrilled to have Tyler on. He's Bloomberg National Politics reporter. He's all over the Biden campaign. Tyler, what are they saying about last night and what are we going to expect for tonight? Yeah, Kevin, it's great to join you uh, from Wilmington, Delaware, where we have some semblance of a, of a convention in person where Kamala Harris and Joe Biden will be delivering their speeches in front of a small press uh, pool over the next two nights, Wednesday and Thursday. But the Biden campaign and Democrats are pretty excited about what 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 occurred last night. Obviously, they would have preferred to be in Milwaukee with thousands of cheering people. Um, but but given the circumstances, I think they're pretty satisfied with how it went. Obviously, as you mentioned, Michelle Obama's speech um, was was really the emotional high point of, of the night. And there was a lot of hype about her speech after her 2016 speech, where she had that famous line, when they go low, we go high. And there was a lot of uh, a lot of expectations for her to live up to that moment. And I think Democrats think she did. But but what I found really interesting about last night was the message was not as much about Joe Biden as it was about Donald Trump. And you I'm saw so that glad you said that. Board. I'm so glad um, you said that because I thought it was remarkable to have Senator Bernie Sanders tie speaking just just in the same hour as former uh, Republican governor of Ohio, John Kasich. Go ahead. Right. And, and they, they spoke back to back. And, and the message that, that the Democrats were trying to send last night, obviously there's four nights and, and it'll be spaced out a little bit where we'll get more Joe Biden heavy content tonight with Joe Biden's speech. And then, of course, his speech on Thursday night. But the point that, that I think the Democrats were trying to make, and, and it's, it's too early to say how effective that was in, in convincing voters of the argument, but that this is not just about Joe Biden. This is about Democrats, independents, Republicans coming together to say this is a moment in which we need to defeat Donald Trump. So, and, it, and, and Joe Biden is the vehicle to do that, but it's larger than just him. See, I find this remarkable for two things, because when I talk to Republicans, Tyler, what they say is, well, look at the president's approval rating amongst the Republican Party. It's like plus 90 percent. It's the highest, you know, that that are just as high as any Republican. But on the flip side of that, th this other issue of Joe Biden being a placeholder, so to speak, of the next generation of Democratic leaders and i i think it just almost what are they what are we saying what are they saying about what we will hear when joe biden does speak to the country thursday night because that speech is gonna be so incredibly important right and 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 joe biden's not known as in a you know an incredible public speaker he's not a barack obama or a bill clinton who are known for these these speeches that, that people remember. Joe Biden is the retail politician who likes to get up in up close and personal with one-on-one -on -one with voters on, on the rope line. And so it'll be interesting to see how he's able to translate that into this arguably the most important speech of his life. I don't think we'll see a new message from him. I think we'll see him talk about his life story, the tragedies that he suffered with his first wife and his yeah. children. Um, and then he'll go into this message that he's been harping since April 2019 when he launched, which is that the country's in a battle for the soul of its nation. And, and he is the person to be able to restore stability and, and decency to the White House that Democrats argue 
is, is lacking in, in the Trump administration. All right, we got 90 seconds left, and I want to make sure that I got this question in. You had a bombshell scoop the other week about who is advising the Biden campaign on the economy. It includes former Fed chairwoman Janet Yellen. Who else? What do we know? Are they centrist? Are they progressive? What does it say? Right. So the, the Biden has been getting these economic policy briefings, and, they, and they've been pretty secretive in terms of who's been part of them. Um, they include longtime I- advisors like Jared Bernstein and Heather Boucher. Um, Biden's main economic advisors are, are, are centrist there in his model of the Democratic Party. But the one name to keep in mind is that Elizabeth Warren and him have developed quite a close relationship in the past few months. And she is someone that's been on his year on economic policy issues, obviously in an informal way. Um, she was vetted to be vice president, was not selected. I don't think she's going to be Treasury Secretary, but I, I do think that that she has been influencing Biden on on economic policy issues um, over the over the past few months, particularly as it relates to recovery from the coronavirus pandemic. Wouldn't it be funny if she was the named this Consumer Financial Protection Bureau director? Oh, the revolving door of Washington. Tyler, uh, we still got. Uh, well, if you don't think that she's going to be, I find this very fascinating, right? Because the wonk in me and the nerd in me really does want to. Know where does an Elizabeth Warren go in a Joe Biden administration, or does she want to continue climbing the ranks in the Senate? Is the expectation that 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 he would tap a Rubenite or uh, a Larry Summers esque type of person for for Treasury or Fed, or are they not there yet? Right, I don't think they're there yet. I think they're happy that they just finished the, the VP process, <laughs> and, and that took a lot longer um, than I think. With the convention pushback they, and, and the amount of people, Biden kept 11 people in till, till the end when he told 10 of them that they weren't getting it. So I don't think they've moved that far along. And, and I do think the appointments are going to be particularly interesting because Biden, and this circles back to our, our first point, Biden calls himself a bridge to the future generation of leaders. And, and so it'll be interesting to see who he puts in certain positions to elevate their profile. Someone like Pete Buttigieg, who doesn't necessarily have a political future in Indiana, Definitely wants a cabinet slot. What that looks like as uh, to be determined. But but I think it really will send a signal about who Joe Biden sees as the future of the Democratic Party. Something that we'll see tonight with this keynote address that's divided up between 17 Democrats from across the country. All right, Tyler Pager continuing to absolutely kill it uh, in uh, on the Bloomberg Politics beat. He's joining us from from Wilmington or, De- or Dover, Dover. From Wilmington. From Wilmington, Delaware. All right. Well, if you're going to be in Wilmington, uh, make sure you go to one of those Italian restaurants. I'll text you which one because i that's my train station when I get off at the stop early before Philly. All right. Talk to you later, Ty. Coming up, more policy and politics. We check in with the State Department. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Radio. This is my song that makes me in a good mood. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Stocks climbed to record on Tech Rally. U.S. stocks completed the fastest ever return to a record after a drop of at least 20%, surpassing February highs for the first time since the pandemic upended financial markets. The dollar fell to the lowest in more than two years while Treasuries advanced. So the the market uh, climbing to a record on that tech rally. Then you've got some other major developments pertaining to... 
fiscal stimulus. But I still want to talk about last night because last night, and as we look forward to this evening, but last night, Senator Bernie Sanders, he really had his had a tough task ahead of him. He had to, number one, speak in a not convention room. He had to speak to a camera. Two, he had to, to, to unify the party. He had to unify the, the, the progressive flank and get them excited and fired up about Bernie Sanders. I'm sorry, about, about Joe Biden. Um, and lastly, he also he had to still find a way to, to, to pull the party to the left. I thought it was really a remarkable task. Uh, and let's see how he did. Jeff Weaver's on the line. He's the former senior advisor for Bernie Sanders' 2020 campaign. He's also the former campaign manager for Bernie Sanders back in 2016. Jeff, great to talk with you again. Uh, I, thought, I thought Senator Sanders, the way he laid it out, was less about policy and more about fascism. Take me behind the scenes. How did they arrive at that decision to make that pitch? Well, it was you know it was Bernie Sanders' speech, so Bernie Sanders wrote it, um, and uh, you know Bernie Sanders is very very uh, animated by the uh, threat that Donald Trump poses to American democracy. As you know, the senator has spoken often about you know his own family being uh, killed in Europe uh, by authoritarians there, and this creeping authoritarianism we see in America. You know, whether it's uh, using the military against uh, unarmed protesters or using uh, federal agents without insignia and rounding people up in unmarked cars and taking them to unknown facilities. You know, this is a very dangerous pattern, a very dangerous path that we are uh, walking down. And, you know, as he pointed out in the speech, it's really something that should unite progressives, moderates, and even conservatives uh, who want to preserve the fundamental institutions of American democracy. So as 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 we go forward to this evening, when Alexandria Ocasio Cortez will speak, she really is the heir apparent in many ways to the Democratic Socialist flank of the Democratic Party. And so, I guess, are you concerned that 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 crowd won't turn out to show up for 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 Joe Biden? I mean, they really are. There are a lot of differences between that flank of the party and Joe Biden, especially when you've got John Kasich endorsing Joe Biden. Well, sure. I, you know, look at Trump because of Trump and who he is, and uh, you know the danger he poses not only to our, our democracy but also to our economy and to the public health of our country uh, and to basic, you know, fundamental civil uh, decency in this country. You know, Joe Biden has a great opportunity to put together what we call, and sometimes on the left, a popular front. You know, a, a group of folks who don't all agree on the issues, but you know, who join together in an electoral campaign in order to. A further a goal, in this case, defeating Donald Trump and electing Joe Biden. Uh, you know, the governing coalition that comes after this, you know, we're going to have a Democratic House, we should have a Democratic Senate, we'll have a Democratic president, and Democrats will be running the country, uh, you know, based on the fact that voters elect him. And and so I think you'll see a different electro, uh, electoral coalition from the governing coalition that comes out of this camp. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Night two of the virtual Democrat K-12 
convention, we are going to have a complete preview of former President Bill Clinton and freshman Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Speaker Pelosi saying that she now favors a slim down stimulus with additional stimulus in January. No new talks are set as negotiations remain at a stalemate. Plus, all of that. And the U.S. Postal Service, Louis DeJoy, who runs the US, the U.S. Postal Service, he says, did you see this? He says he's not going to touch any of the policies until after the election. I'll bring you up to speed on that. And we check in with the State Department. Keith Kroc, the Undersecretary for Economic Affairs, says he wants colleges and universities to divest from China funds. CC Alibaba. So we have a lot to get through. Uh, we've got an all-star panel. We have an all-star panel to help navigate through it. Josh Galper is on the line. He is a co-founder and partner of public relations firm Trident DMG and the law firm Davis Goldberg and Galper. He is also a former DNC convention speechwriter back in 2004 and 2008. Wow. All right. So, Josh, let's start with the conventions. All right. First of all, how are you? How's the family? Everyone doing all right? Everyone's great, Kevin, and, and thanks for having me on. But yeah, we're, we're trying to have a, a COVID summer <laughs> like everybody else. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's get right to it for a preview of uh, the conventions, but also your analysis of, of, of last night. What does former President Bill Clinton have to do? And what does AOC have to do? And then, of course, we'll hear from Dr. Jill Biden as well, uh, Joe Biden's uh, uh, wife. But for AOC and Bill Clinton, it really is about saying this right now is where the Democratic Party is on economic issues. So I, I think that's right, Kevin. And, you know, if you start with what we saw last night, it was a real, uh, very broad picture of unity uh, for the party. And I think when we look at what AOC will have to say tonight, I think it will be, you know, a very strong nod toward the progressive uh, wing of the Democratic Party, which is uh, very much, uh, you know, in line with where the party as a whole uh, wants to go. And, of course, they've been driving a lot of uh, the agenda throughout the Democratic uh, primaries. And I think you'll see AOC take the stage and, um, you know, certainly tip the hat. Uh, and and she's all-star. People are very excited to hear her. I think when you look at um, President Clinton and what he will say, uh, you know, he's he's played a really key role in, in prior conventions as that explainer-in-chief. Uh, yes, where economic arguments are concerned. And I think that um, one of the things you'll probably hear from him is linking up uh, the economic argument with the this moment of crisis that we're in. I'm talking about the economic crisis we're in and the coronavirus uh, crisis that we're in, obviously. And we do need to see those issues linked. And I think that's part of what the next three nights of the convention are going to hold to. And I think uh, former President Clinton is a great messenger uh, to make that case. Brian Darling, I want to bring him into this conversation. He's a former senior communications director for Senator Rand Paul and a founder of Liberty Government Affairs. Brian, last night when I was covering the first night of the virtual Democratic convention, what I heard was the Democrats outlining what they view as the problem. They have there is a global pandemic there with uh, there is also, of course, an economic depression and inequality that touches every facet of of our nation, including racial inequality. Uh, but did you hear that Joe Biden is the solution? I heard a lot of this is the problem, 
But I, as Tyler Pager told us in the last hour, he's a Bloomberg politics reporter, we didn't necessarily hear, here's what Joe Biden would do to fix it. Did I miss something or no? No, I think you're you're correct. I think that we didn't hear many of the solutions being rolled out by Democrats yesterday. We did not hear a comprehensive plan to solve all the nation's ills. We heard a lot of discussion how the Democrats don't want Donald Trump to serve another 40 years in office. So I do think that the, the party is lacking in a cohesive message and giving basically the American people a reason to say, hey, I want to, point, I want to vote for Democrats because of policy A, B, C, and D. We, I just don't think we heard that. And I think one of the reasons is because the party's pretty divided in Medicare for All and, and a handful of the other issues like the Green New Deal. So when you listen for AOC tonight and Bill Clinton, Brian, what are you going to be listening for as a Republican? Well, I wish I would give AOC a lot more time. I'd like to see her speak for half an hour. I think that'd be very helpful for Republicans. <laughs> also, I mean, I think Bill Clinton's a great speaker. He's somebody who really will pull together a cohesive message. And um, I think Democrats are lacking because when people will compare Joe Biden and the way he communicates versus Bill Clinton, they're going to see a big difference. And I think that's the big letdown. I mean, the convention, as it is, you know, we live in these unique days where the convention's all online. So um, nobody's there. There's no cheering. So both parties are going to suffer as a result. But I think one of the big drawbacks is in the end of this, we're actually going to hear from Joe Biden. And I just don't think he can live up to a lot of the hype and a lot of the good speeches that we've heard yesterday and we'll be hearing over the next few days. Uh, Josh Galper's on the line and Brian Darling. Brian, there were several Republicans that spoke last night, including former Ohio Governor John Kasich. Does that do anything to pull away Republicans in battleground states or maybe independents in battleground states? That's got to have you a little bit worried. Well, I don't think so. I think that um, when you look at John Kasich, he's somebody who will reaffirm a lot of the the Republicans that never liked Donald Trump to they'll feel more comfortable, I guess, voting for, for Joe Biden. But I don't think it moves that many votes. I don't think Kasich was somebody who was actually looked upon as a as a leader in the party who's going to move somebody. It's not like a, a you know they polled somebody who was a surprise. I don't think anybody is shocked to see John Kasich speaking at the Democratic convention. Uh, Josh Gapper, your analysis on those Republicans who spoke last night. John Gasick literally standing at a crossroads, just him in a drone. Did you see the drone? I'm sorry. You know, I got to give, I wish there was like a, a sideshow grading of what everybody thought. I mean, clearly Michelle Obama had the best speech last night. I don't care if you, if you are a Democrat or a Republican, objectively speaking, she played to the medium better than anyone. She knew that she was talking to people's cell phones because that's how people are mostly are going to consume this thing when they're streaming it on their devices. You know, and, the, and, and, and everything about if you're going to speak to an empty room, do it like that. You know, that's how you that's how you know that the televangelist style. I mean, that's what you do. You don't try to give a speech as if you're in a packed stadium and no one's there. It's just going to look awkward and, and weird. But but if Michelle Obama, I thought, knocked it out of the park in terms of, you know, she wasn't even projecting. She was speaking one on one. I, I thought that was a real highlight. And I think everyone, Republican or Democrat, if you're not going to speak to a crowded room, that's how you do it, Josh. 
Now, I, I think you're right about that. And, and we've all got to realize, step back, and, you know, Brian made mention of this. This is a convention unlike we've ever seen. Um, I think for, you know, the benefit of the, the Democratic Party, uh, the party's been working on putting together this convention to pivot to the kind of style that you're talking about, Kevin, that actually reads to a room, a room being, um, you know, just one person sitting there speaking. You feel like you're a foot away from them. It's more intimate speaking style. It's not with the applause lines. And, you know, you, you want to avoid that kind of style because, as you said, uh, it, it can turn awkward. Um, but I do think, you know, l- let's also step back and realize, you know, what we heard last night was setting the foundation. People are excited in the Democratic Party. I think people um, beyond the Democratic Party are, are excited and interested to understand what Biden and the Democratic Party can offer. I'm talking about those all-important, you know, swing voters that, um, you know, it can take to win. And I think what they saw last night was the case against Trump. We saw that in just stark relief, and there was a lot of that. But this is part one of a four-part story, right? This is a saga that plays out over the next three nights. We're going to see um, what the Democratic Party stands for. There is a platform. There will be people speaking to it. You already heard references to it uh, last night, but you're going to hear very strong arguments on the economy uh, for that, looking for that comprehensive plan that brings in all the issues that, uh, that the former vice president has been talking about on the campaign trail and that so many others are talking about. As far as Republicans go who were featured last night, I think that that was another job uh, really well done. They gave a, uh, a permission of sorts to those who are tuning in to say, you know what, um, enough is enough. And we are names uh, to you, and, and it's okay to support them. We're not going um, to support uh, Biden, and we're not going to agree with him on everything. And that is okay. And I think that's what translated very clearly last night. I want to go to TribLive.com because they've got a headline, uh, which is the, one of the local papers out of Pittsburgh. Connor Lamb among 17 rising stars to deliver Tuesday's keynote speech for the Democratic National Convention. He's going to be one of the featured folks uh, speaking tonight, not in a main address, but he's going to be known, uh, dubbed as a rising star. Connor Lamb, remember that he was one of those centrist Democrats who was able to defeat in a Republican district. Uh, he's 36. He's of Mount Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Uh, and... Where is it? Because I want to make sure I get the his his backstory. He, of course, had defeated um, Republicans and and was able to flip mm-hmm. a historically red region blue by ousting two Trump-backed candidates in back-to-back special and general elections. Uh, and after he was elected, he followed through on his pledge not to vote for Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, uh, which is fascinating because he said that that if he asserted that he would be in he would be in favor of voting to impeach Trump. So Connor Lamb, we often talk about him. And over the weekend, the New York Times with Connor Lamb uh, had a piece that said what Joe Biden can learn from Connor Lamb. The headline on that, how Biden can learn from Connor Lamb's victory in Trump country. He's a Trump country Democrat. Stacey Abrams is also going to speak tonight. We had her on the program the other week. Uh, Dr. Jill Biden and, of course, Bill Clinton and AOC. I mean, it's going to be remarkable, and you two are going to be with me for the whole hour, but I just want to close out uh, on conventions. So we've got a, like two minutes left, so I want to give you the one thing on your radar. I want you to tell – actually, give me your – I'm sick of that. Give me your favorite convention memory, Josh Galper. What's your favorite convention memory? Uh, for me, it is it is being in the hall right up um, you know, in front of the stage watching – um, Barack Obama give the keynote in 2004. That, that, wow. that was just a, a tremendous moment. 
Well, I, I go back uh, and for for prep for all of these two weeks, and I was watching old convention speeches, and you know, from Colin Powell to you know George Bush when he you know mm-hmm. did his, and and also, but the Barack Obama speech. I mean, I remember watching that even as a kid, and that you know, it's it's fascinating to watch, you know, how that launched his or helped launch his his uh, national career. Brian Darling, your favorite convention memory. Oh, no doubt. Pat Buchanan's speech to the convention uh, was one of my favorites. I, <laughs> I know that it probably horrifies you guys, but it Why? Really wait, no, wait. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't assume that you know my political anything. <laughs> I play it straight, Brian. Go, it was come so on. Don't great. Just, I, I'm offended by that, Brian. I've worked with you for years. You know I don't put any of my politics in anything. I, I know that. I, basically, I'm just saying that I think most people are offended by this speech, and I, I thought it was great. I mean, he really spoke from the heart. He's somebody who definitely pushes against the conventional wisdom. He was a predecessor to what we're seeing now with Donald Trump, who, you know, obviously is not politically correct. But I think that the Buchanan speech was something that I took away, and I, I thought it was extraordinary because it was just so different from anything we've ever heard at a convention. The culture war speech back in 1992 <laughs> coming up panel stays. Josh Galbert, Brian Darling. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. In the break, I was looking at the Buchanan culture war speech because Brian Darling was telling me all about it. And uh, wow, what a doozy. It was, I'm going to have to watch that again tonight, uh, Bri. Brian Darling's here, former senior communications director for Kentucky Senator Rand Paul and founder of Liberty Government Affairs. Josh Galper also on the line. Josh, what did you think of Pat Buchanan back in 92? Um, I, I think I had the opposite view of uh, what I'm I think it was quite scary. <laughs> really scary. <laughs> he is a co-founder and partner of the public relations firm Trident DMG and the law firm Davis Goldberg and Galper. He's a former DNC, DNC convention speechwriter in 2004 and 2008. Can you tell me whose speech you wrote or whose speech you helped write? Or no, I guess... Uh, to not something that speechwriters reveal, but uh. it's, uh, you know, you're assigned uh, anywhere from 20 to, you know, more speeches uh, to work on with uh, folks who are speaking. So you're, you're um, diving into a lot of people's, um, you know, thoughts and backgrounds. It's a, it's a fascinating and fun process. What did you make, Josh? Well, we'll come back to it. But I mean, you got to have watched last night and thought, well, that worked, that did it. I think Michelle Obama works, but I think a lot of the other interludes didn't really work. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Well, I think it, you'd have to go, I think, you know, segment by segment. What was clear to me is that there was a really well-thought-out plan, and, and it built on itself. Um, I, I do think that the um, Eva Longoria uh, moderating worked quite well. I agree. And everything together. I, I thought she was terrific, and uh, everything was very, you know, smooth and, and flowing from one to the other. Um, you know, I think it was also really helpful that the digital team – um, it, clearly, they had ninjas there, right? I mean, there there were not glitches the kind that you might expect with that kind of complexity. Yeah, there weren't glitches. Uh, together. I thought, I, for me personally, again, this has nothing to do with either party. But and 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 listen, you know, I feel bad. I mean, it's I don't really feel bad, but I mean, it is the first time there's ever been a virtual convention. But I I, I thought that they should have magnified the Eva Longoria model in the sense of that they should have played that. Almost, if you're going to go that route of having a moderator or a host, so to speak, they could have even done that even more and said, let's go out here or let's go down to South Carolina. I, I thought that worked really well, but I don't know. What I mean, it's the yeah, first time. That's, it's their first time. that's an interesting thought. You know, here's one thing I thought that was interesting, Kevin. Um, on some of the, uh, on, one, on one station I saw, there would be occasional break ins by, you know, well known hosts. Yep. And then, you know, and I really couldn't deal because I really wanted to listen, right, to what was happening. I it's agree. not like watching the, the the stadium scene where you expect the break-ins and it's okay if you're missing some of it. So I found that a little bit um, very or a lot intrusive when it happened. It's it's that's such a good point because conventions are typically covered like a sporting event, and with a sporting event, you have mm-hmm. sports broadcasters and whatnot. But because it was pre-programmed. It was very difficult for for to do that, and the networks were trying to figure that out as well. The whole thing, it just it was it was different. Listen, I hope this is a one off, and I said it yesterday. The panel disagreed. I hope you two agree with me. I mean, feel free to disagree, but I, I I love the conventions. I think it's an opportunity, like you mentioned, for our political leaders to really, you know give a, a a sense of what they stand for not just for the country but also for the world i think it's a it's an incredibly important show of of democracy of patriotism for for the parties i hope that it goes back to normal um yeah everything can be improved for the better but i definitely hope in four years that we're doing this you know somewhere right or no live and in person <laughs> yeah I, I agree. All right. All right. Let's pivot to policy. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi favoring a slimmed down stimulus now and then more in January. Reading from my colleague Billy House's reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi indicated that Democrats might cut their stimulus proposal to seal a deal with Republicans and speed COVID-19 relief, then come back after the November elections with additional agenda items. Pelosi said she doesn't want to wait until the end of September when Congress will be attempting to pass a bill needed from Congress to keep the federal government funded at the start of the new fiscal year on October 1st. As for a stimulus package, she said, we have to try to come to that agreement now. Wow. All right. I mean, Brian Darling, it sounds like she's budging. She has to budge. I think the president took action that's forcing anti-Democrats Cry, I can't hear you. You're breaking up. You got to go to an area of your house where there's where there's a connection. Josh Galper, is, tell me. I'll come back to you, Brian, in a yep. second. Josh, is, is is she budging? 
Uh, well, I, I, this is definitely a change from what we saw, what was it, four days ago, three days ago, the last three or four days. Um, but but it's really Im- important that that something does happen, right? And I think before she made this statement, we were all looking to September 30th as being that forcing mechanism, right, for the continuing resolution to make sure the government is funded to avoid a shutdown. We were going to see uh, some kind of relief bill probably be part of that action because it has to happen. People are counting on this money. Businesses are counting on this money, right, because the well is run dry for assistance uh, for both of those categories, rent assistance, food assistance, all of these um, areas of relief. Uh, you know, there's there's nothing for people to, to turn to. And I think that it's pretty important that we get these checks into the hands of Americans or, you know, we, we will face um, an even perhaps greater economic crisis than we're facing now, especially if there's, more, you know, more draconian lockdowns that are put into place as, uh, you know, virus starts to spike up in different places. It gets, starts to mix with um, you know the, the flu. We've got to make sure that people are helped. So I think it's you know in everybody's interest, certainly in the American people's interest, to see that happen. I mean, going going bigger would have been probably smarter again for everybody, including the administration. But it's important that we get something done. I'm glad the, the speaker said that. And look, she called everybody back. Uh, to come back to look at the U.S. Postal Service and the chamber, the Democratic chamber is going to vote uh, on Saturday on adding $25 billion in postal service funding. And Secretary Mnuchin, speaking on CNBC earlier today, said that he hopes that that Speaker Pelosi and, and himself will be able to talk about these negotiations while she is in town. And member folks, earlier this month, it was just this month, when Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer said that the Democrats do not have the votes on their side to go below two trillion dollars. So some some wiggle room, some negotiations some top line looking down. And like I said, Speaker Pelosi is going to be back in town. She's rallying all the Democrats and the House members back into town this weekend to vote on that twenty five billion dollars worth of age aid. Louis DeJoy says that he's not going to touch. He's not going to touch the, the U.S. Postal Service till after the election. Much more coming up. This is my mom's favorite song. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent from Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. The U.S. State Department is asking colleges and universities to divest from Chinese holdings in their endowments, warning schools in a letter Tuesday to get ahead of potentially more onerous measures on holding the shares. Keith Crock is the Undersecretary for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment. He wrote this letter, quote, Boards of U.S. university endowments would be prudent to divest from the People's Republic of China firm's stocks in the likely outcome that enhanced listing standards lead to a wholesale delisting of PRC firms from U.S. exchanges by the end of next year. He goes on to write, quote, holding these stocks also runs the high risks associated with PRC companies having to re or to re re estate financials. Joining us on the line is Keith Kroc, the Undersecretary for Economic Growth, Energy and the Environment at the U.S. Department of State. Uh, Mr. Undersecretary, thank you for joining us. I didn't even realize how many colleges and universities had entanglements with 
China and the Communist Party. Wow. Well, Kevin, uh, this was part of a uh, uh, letter to all the governing boards for all the universities and, and, and colleges, um, you know, uh, institutions of, of higher learning. And um, it was uh, part of four things I wanted to cover. Really, the first one was the whole area of academic freedom and Confucius Institutes uh, that uh, the State Department uh, designated Confucius Institutes um, as uh, a foreign mission um, uh, by a foreign government. So that was part of it. The other part of it is I also wanted to share with them um, some of the risk in these endowment funds, as well as... um, uh, the research that is going on and the dangers of IP theft and the Thou- Thousand Talents program, as well as update them on uh, the Xinjiang uh, human rights abuses um, in terms of their supply chains. It's very similar to the letter that I sent to all CEOs uh, in the United States, except with an academic twist. And and I wrote to the to these uh, boards of trustees, boards of directors, boards of overseers, uh, however they're designated these universities, uh, uh, you know, as uh, two things, as really a partner, because they've been a great partner for the United States State Department in terms of upholding academic freedom and freedom, and those are being challenged uh, now with the threat of the Chinese Communist Party. But also, as a former uh, chairman of Board of Trustees of Purdue University. Exactly. Um, and, and And so... You know, this is one of those things that I'm looking this here at the State Department. I go, you know, this would be something that all these governing boards would really want to see and really need to talk about because they have uh, governance responsibilities. They have fiduciary duties. And and they also, you know, on, on these things, um, and, and, you know, from my experience dealing with the American Association of Governance Board, um, it, it's it's really one of addressing a long-term strategic issues of this magnitude. That responsibility sits squarely on the shoulders of each and well, every board member. And we, we talk about this from a broader standpoint, but just to, to simplify it, I mean, so many of these universities are, are rightfully um, the the ground zero for for next generation debates pertaining to to civil liberties and to freedom of speech arguments and at the same time these universities are have their endowments that are invested or have ties to the communist party of china which has horrific human rights abuses and i'm reading from my own report on the bloomberg terminal us pension funds or i'm sorry in addition to venture capital endowments have directed growing portions of their passive investments into chinese companies that us politicians say are linked to human rights abuses, and national security threats. Are, 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 is there anything from a concrete action that the administration could take uh, or that Congress that you see in the pipeline that could really, um, really force these uh, universities to divest? Is that something that's in the works, or is that something that could happen in the short term? Uh, Kevin, that, that, that decision is, is the president, so I don't want to get out ahead of, uh, of the president. All I was trying to do was to say, hey, uh, you, uh, you know, these boards have a, uh, a moral responsibility and perhaps a fiduciary duty to really look into this, to make sure 
their investments are clean to make sure they have clean endowment funds. Um, you know, there's a number of uh, these companies on the entity list and also ones with human rights violations. And most, most of these boards don't even realize that they're invested in stocks like this, in companies like this, who, you know, uh, perpetuate these human rights abuses like in Xinjiang. Um, where they've set up, you know, internment camps um, that really uh, are trying to get rid of, uh, of religious freedoms. Uh, the, uh, the Uyghurs and, um, uh, and other Muslim groups in terms of their cultural diversity by uh, sterilization, abortion, torture, um, all of that. And, and that labor's being shipped everywhere. Uh, throughout China. And, and so this, this is something that they should discuss as a board. So that's all I was trying to do is really alert them to that fact, because I can tell you most of them don't know. And most of them um, also don't know about those endowment funds because um, they'll, inv- they'll invest in emerging index funds. And there's these Chinese companies that are inside those index funds. So it, and by the way, it's very similar uh, to the TSP, and that is the pension fund for our warriors and our civil servants, um, where, uh, you know, Larry Kudlow and Ambassador O'Brien, head of the NSC, um, uh, wrote to our Secretary of Labor, uh, Scalia, um, about, you know, hey, um, let's not include this in, in these pension funds. So even in the state pension fund, it's there as well. So it's prevalent. And, and then on top of that, uh, you had the president's uh, financial working group make their recommendations, uh, you know, about the Chinese um, companies listed on the stock exchange. And as you know, they don't have to uh, have the same transparency uh, uh accountability that um, U.S. companies do. They don't have to do Sarbanes-Oxley. You can't um, uh, audit their books all the way because they won't turn over the working papers because there's a law in in China that says we don't have to disclose anything to you that's uh, based on national security. And it's a tremendous risk for American investors. It also creates an unlevel playing field for our company and not even just it's also just i mean just from a page i mean just not even just from an investor standpoint just from a small business perspective i mean the fact that 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 when you when you talk about you know civil servants having investment ties in america that they could be knowingly unknowingly having financial dealings with the communist party it's just it's just you know that it's really an issue that i think and even if you look at colleges and universities and, and, and the conversations that they have across the country on a host of different issues, and then meanwhile, their endowments are being linked to the Communist Party, it's, it's really fascinating. Keith Kroc, I know I'm going to catch up with you later this week on Bloomberg Television. Uh, thank you so much for making time for me 
Keith, uh, Mr. Undersecretary, uh, this evening. I appreciate that, as always. Uh, and you can read my exclusive report on the Bloomberg Terminal uh, and, of course, on Bloomberg.com. Keith Rock is the Undersecretary for Economic Affairs at the U.S. State Department. Coming up, more reaction from the panel. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. You can download uh, the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on all ways that you get the Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Remember, folks, you can follow along with us, David Weston, myself, the whole squad, uh, across platform on Bloomberg Radio, on Bloomberg Television, and as we cover the conventions, uh, speaking of which, the ratings for the convention. Did you see this? Did you see this? Uh, first night of the 2020 DNC tanks and TV ratings compared to 2016 from the New York Post. The first night of the virtual 2020 Democratic National Convention was largely a snooze fest, and that was reflected in its dismal TV ratings, which tanked compared to the opening festivities of 2016. Um they averaged the networks, CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox, MSNBC, and CNN, 18.68 million viewers during the overlapping hour of coverage beginning at 10, which is, of course, when they're going to be doing this, uh, when they're dipping in for that. I mean, hey, uh, who knows? Who knows anymore? Uh, joining us, people who do know. They are Josh Galper, co-founder and partner of public relations firm Trident DMG and the law firm Davis Goldberg and Galper and a former DNC convention speechwriter. And Brian Darling, former senior communications director for Senator Rand Paul and the founder of Liberty Government Affairs. Gents, thanks for staying with me. Bri, sorry about the the phone issue earlier on in the hour, but I'm going to let you go first on what's my favorite part of the show. Tell me something. I don't know what's on your radar. Well, I think what's on my radar is something similar to what's on a lot of Americans' radar. This whole postal issue and the postal yep. bailout vote that's coming up on Saturday. One of the things I think is underreported is the fact that the Postal Service just already got a bailout. They already got $10 billion in loans in the last bailout package. So I don't think many Americans understand that we're funneling billions of dollars to the post office and they can't turn a profit. All right, well, let's let's dive into this because a lot of people are talking about the U.S. Postal Service. Reading from the Bloomberg Terminal, Todd Shields and Eric Larson. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy said that he is suspending changes to mail service that raise concerns over slow delivery of ballots in the fall election after Democrats accused President Trump of hampering the vote-by-mail process. He wrote, quote, in an emailed statement, quote, to avoid even the appearance of any impact on election mail, I am suspending these initiatives until after the election is concluded. Meanwhile, folks, he's actually going to testify on Capitol Hill uh, and the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee uh, on Friday. He's actually going to appear twice before Congress this week. I apologize, this week before the Senate and on Monday before the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. Speaker Pelosi is actually, as you mentioned, Bri, she called the House back and they're going to vote on $25 billion in funding. I don't think it's going to go anywhere in the Republican-controlled Senate. 
All right, so that's what's on your radar. But before I ask you, Josh, what's on your radar? I mean, weigh in on this mail-in voting. I mean, last night yeah. it was a keynote for for Michelle Obama, and she said, you know, be all over this, folks, and and get and get all over it. Yeah, and I think it is incredibly important for people to be all over it. I hope that every American is heeding uh, that word. And I think that there are people on both sides of the aisle who are keying on uh, in on the fact that there's been a lot of chaos created through the president's statements, uh, which all add up to you know an, an attempt to undermine this election. You were prescient, Kevin, in uh, devoting your special recently Thank to you. this issue. I, I do I do recommend folks see it to see all sides, right, um, and, and to learn a lot more about it. But I think um, thank you, Josh. I, I think while uh, no, really, I do, and and I think that um, you know when you see what uh, DeJoy has said. Um, you know, that's all well and good, but man, there's a lot more to get into here. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only do we have to make sure that there is a permanent reversal of moves that he has made since June, pretty much under the radar. This is, uh, you know, a, a simple yet complex issue for people to get, but I think people are grasping it, especially as state officials uh, grab hold of this and they're circling to, uh, you know, sue and make sure that. You know, none of these reversals can be uh, reversed again because there has been a lot of confusion. I also think that at these oversight hearings, what you're going to hear about, certainly in the House, um, is some of this uh, gentleman's background. Uh, it doesn't appear to me that there was a huge amount of uh, perhaps vetting, but that's no surprise to me with this administration, um, before this person was put into place. He has a lot of business interests, business ties that conflict with the operations of the Postal Service. And I think there are going to be some really tough questions that we're going to uh, learn about um, to find of, out why it is that he still has his business ties one to of those the things, businesses that do business. Yeah. One of the things that I learned in reporting out that special on mail-in voting was just about how in other countries, the voting infrastructure is a largely nonpartisan issue. And there is the infrastructure, the bureaucratic infrastructure exists in our country for that to take hold, but it would need significant political buy-in from both parties. And it really extends in the long term and not just from the sense of between now and November 3rd. I'm talking a decade, two decades out from now when we are all, you know, voting dare I say it, digitally or through other infrastructures. And so if, if, you're, if, if we as a country are going to plan for that, that has to start now because there already exists um, through the intelligence world and the military world, um, they're, they're, they already have the, the, the foundation for that infrastructure. And in fact, some of the networks of how we vote um, and, and transmit, they have a, a synergy with the states. Obviously, states run elections. But there's a synergy from the federal government. But to enhance that synergy would arguably better prepare us for 10, 20 years from now when we're not voting by mail and we are voting via another mechanism um, and protecting ourselves and the, and the foundation of democracy and the integrity of elections from hostile foreign powers. So I think that this issue is just a, a drop in the ocean in terms of what we as a country are going to be facing to protect our elections over the long term. All right. So, Bri, that was a great one for, for sure. what's on your radar. Josh, what's on your radar? 
Well, on my radar, first of all, is is the end of this. Um, you know, is the next three nights of this great convention. You know, the Democratic Party is putting on. But I'm I'm really uh, also uh, very you know focused on watching what the Republicans have to offer next week. Um, and I, I guarantee you, it's going to be an opposite sort of feeling of what you're seeing here. It, you're not going to see, I think, a convention that rep- represents Americans going out of its way to broaden. Um, its reach uh, to people to bring them in. This is going to be, I think, a convention that is uh, all about tripling down on the base that's enthusiastic and is frankly shrinking. Um, and we see that in, in national polls. And, um, you know, I think for, for the Democratic Party, that will all be uh, well and good. And, and I also uh, wonder how planned out they're going to be. I mean, they've, they've lurched around, the Republican Party has, uh, from doing it in person to changing cities to paring it down. Um, I, I have no idea what to expect, but they, they've got a lot of hours of TV to fill. We'll see. see Part how of me thinks, top line view, the conventions are going to be a wash this year, but what do I know? Uh, the thing that's on my radar is actually up north in Canada, Canadia land. We head over the border. Justin Trudeau named Christia Freeland as Canada's new finance minister and is expected to suspend parliament in an attempt to reset his government's agenda. Freeland, 52, was sworn in on Tuesday during a ceremony in Ottawa. She, of course, is one of the top negotiators during the USMCA uh, deal, and she becomes the first woman to hold the position replacing Bill Monroe because Monroe had to step down on Monday because of all these growing divisions between his department and the prime minister's office. There was a lot of beef there. So there's some controversy up there for, for JT. Thank you to Brian. Thank you to Josh. Uh, and thank you to Keith Crock and Tyler Pager and Jeff Weaver. I'm Kevin Cerulli. That does it for me. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I'm headed to the White House as we continue our coverage of the virtual conventions. Check out my special on mail-in voting cross-platform. Just search for it. It's everywhere on the Bloombergs. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.